Good morning. Oh, I'm out here right now. I've been helping out in the nursery. So I do have a little one with me. Water? She's Zoe's heavy. 14 pounds. I was talking with Beth this morning, and uh, Beth Woods, and we're in need of four more helpers to be able to open up that nursery every Sunday. And I brought Zoe up so you'd see the church of the future. I should have actually come up when all the kids were on the platform, because that's the church of the future too. And we need to be able to build into their lives. We need workers in both. So if you can help out for one week a month, that would be marvelous. I wouldn't recommend holding Zoe for the whole time, but uh, she's getting heavy. I held, got her at the beginning of it as well with my soul. Um, here comes mom <laughs> for the rescue. There you go. Sorry, Zoe, not to wake you up. You've been awake for a long time. Now to get my notes, but I would encourage you to think how the Lord might be laying on your heart or you might be able to help out, whether it be in the children's ministry or in the nursery. Um, but that's the church of tomorrow. And if we want Forest Baptist Church to move ahead, we need to be looking after the younger ones that are here and building into their lives. I learned something this week. For any of you that have to do the drive down to Toronto area and Milton every day, I feel sorry for you. I spent two days of training down in Milton. I drove both times. Not so bad getting there. It's the getting home part. And after a long day, it gets tiresome. But I trust you had a good day yesterday. How many were out for the training Friday and Saturday? How many enjoyed it? All the hands better stay up. And there shouldn't be any, and there shouldn't be any extra hands up either in regards to that. Good. Glad you are able to do that. Um, your traffic coming here was probably a lot less than my traffic on Friday. Uh, and I just, people said, well, what's it like driving down to Forest? I said, I see more cows than cars, so it's not so bad uh, as far as that goes. So if you're like me, every once in a while, you like to, to Google things. Come on, face it, you Google your own name, don't you, Phil? Phil Campbell, see who it is. This week I decided to Google the shortest book. And, and you'd be surprised by the number of entries. You, boy, my arm is sore already. It's getting too old for carrying kids that long. Um, you'd be surprised by the number of hits you get just with the shortest book. And a number of the links are humorous, and they, they lead you to different sites. But there are a few scholarly ones, too. So when, when Charles Dickens released his classic, A Christmas Carol, that book came in in a, a whole 88 pages which is quite the contrast to something like the classic War and Peace by Russian Leo Tolstoy. That book came in at 1,296 pages long. I won't ask if anybody's read it. I haven't. Then there's a book called Baby Shoes. Now, most classify it as, as a short story, but it's purported to be written by Ernest Hemingway. And it was purported to be written in 1954. But there was one serious article that tried to make the case that this book was actually a novel. Let me read it to you. I promise, it won't take long. For sale, 
baby shoes never worn. That's it. Parents, you can thank me later. You now have a great good night story for the kids, a bedtime story. Only six words, you'll be in and out. Well, compared to that, to 3 John, 3 John seems like a long series of post-it notes. In the original, it's 219 words. And even though 3 John holds the title of the shortest book in the Bible, it punches above its weight class. John begins with a familiar theme of love and truth. Then he tackles hospitality, missionary partnership, pride, and, and, and the prosperity gospel even shows up. One of the things we do as, as Christians is we will often romanticize the early church. Oh, what it was like to live in the early church. But that would be incorrect. We would do well to recognize that grace is messy. That we, that, that we and well, that's the point of grace, but we are sinful men. We have depraved minds. We live in rebellion against God. We have unrepentant hearts that are desperately wicked. And it's from this state that God extends His grace to us. It's from this state that God saves us from. And it takes a while for us to work out our salvation. So before we dive into what I consider a theologically rich book, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your kindness and for your love for us. Father, we thank you that even though grace is messy, grace is still there for us. So while you're a just and a loving God, you are a forgiving God. Father, as we look at 3 John this morning, open our hearts and our minds to examine ourselves, to examine how we fit in or don't fit in, and to look at the truths found there. May those truths touch our heart and our mind. May they challenge us. May they encourage us. May they help us to think things through as we try to live out in your grace and give grace to those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, if you have not already turned there in your Bibles, please turn with me to 3 John. 3 John. So it goes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right? If you're going from the end, you can go Revelation, Jude, and then you'll come to 3 John. But it's the third book from the end of the Bible. Beginning in verses 1 through 4. The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you, that it may be good, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So two weeks ago when I was here, we discussed the whole concept of who the elder was. And we concluded that it was now the elderly apostle John. And the letters likely originated from his home in Ephesus before he was sent into exile to the island of Patmos. 
Now, there are some scholars that believe the letters were actually written in Patmos. However, 2nd and 3rd John leave the reader with this expectation that John wants to and is about to go visit these two people. And if John was in exile already, I'm unsure if he had it if he would have had such expectations. With that said, there are those who believe that John was eventually released from exile and the the books were written in Patmos. But I lean to that John wrote the letter prior to his exile. The exile was possibly as late as 94 AD, which gives us a writing time likely around 90 AD. But that gives us another, leaves us with another question to answer as we begin is, who is Gaius? Now, unfortunately, Gaius in the first century is about as popular as the names David, Robert, John, and Michael have been in the last hundred years in Canada. First Corinthians records for us a Gaius that Paul baptized. Then there was his traveling companion, Gaius of Macedonia. And let's not forget Gaius of Derby. We're not able to pinpoint his identity, but that's okay. As John introduces him, we understand that John introduced him to Jesus. He was likely a leader in the church, possibly one church or, or maybe a number of churches in Asia Minor. The text indicates that Gaius and John were close friends whom John loves in the truth. It's a simple greeting, and it could be equated to saying to somebody today that you love them in the Lord. You love them in light of Christian revelation. Remember, in 1 John 4.19, he tells us, we love because He first loved us. Or the traditional greeting continues. And I need to stress, that's exactly what we have here in verse 2, is a traditional greeting, a wish for someone to do well. Look at verse 2, and I'm going to read it from the CSB. Dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for somebody's health and prosperity. There's nothing wrong with wishing them well and greeting and looking for the best for someone. After all, you remember... When Israel was taken captive and taken to Babylon. Remember that? Babylon comes in, they they kill some people, then they dispossess them from the land, and then they force them to relocate back into Babylon. So Babylon was the aggressor. And what what did God tell Israel to do while in Babylon? Jeremiah 29, 4-7. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Who exiled the captives? Not Babylon. God did. They were under judgment. So God's in control here. Verse 5. Build homes and plan to stay. Hey, you're not going anywhere soon. So start building some homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. They're really not going anywhere for a while. Then find spouses for them. How do you like that? 
Mom and dad are going to find your spouse. Then find spouses for them so that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply and do not dwindle. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. We would do well to remember that in our circumstances today. To seek its peace and to pray for our country and to work for its welfare. Well, before we continue, I want to give you a warning about the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel movement, the health, wealth, prosperity, they cling to this verse, verse number two. They completely ignore the context of the verse. The, ver- the, the verse context is that of a simple, traditional, common greeting. There's no universal application meant here, but they hang on to that in their teachings. So I want to give you three issues with viewing Scripture through this prosperity gospel lens, this health and wealth lens. The first is the movement, the prosperity gospel movement, depends entirely on the Old Testament promises of prosperity, which are never repeated in the New Testament to either the church or to the individual. The church is not Israel. Those promises given were never repeated. Second, the prosperity gospel is insensitive to the poverty and hungry hunger many fit believers face in developing nations. So there are spiritually mature believers that suffer, many for reasons out of their control. And we'd have to ask, well, do these promises of health and wealth not apply to them? Not to mention the devastating effect that the prosperity gospel has had in these developing countries. People have come to faith, not out of repentance, not out of a a conviction of sin, but in hopes of changing their circumstances and their physical conditions. They're looking to become wealthy like the Westerners that bring this false gospel to them. Yes, God will meet needs, but there's no promise in Scripture that will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's just not there. The wisdom part is there. Seek and ask God for wisdom and he will give it. The rest isn't. Third, it overlooks the New Testament emphasis on adversity, the the suffering servant aspect, the cost to discipleship. In Acts 14.22 it reads, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In short, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It is no gospel at all. So don't let people point you to 3 John 2 and say, Hey, look, this can be all yours because it's not true. Let's look back at the greeting because the greeting continues, starting in verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So God makes it very clear here that Gaius was an individual whom he had the privilege to share the gospel message with 
and to watch Gaius respond in faith to that message. And I'm sure some of you here sit here this morning, you can relate to those comments. See, John was talking with these traveling missionaries, these fellow believers who had recently been with Gaius. And as they were chatting to John, Gaius' name comes up. And they begin to share of how Gaius is doing, how he's walking in the truth, how he's staying true to the faith. It's reminiscent of what we read in 2 John uh, verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we are com- were commanded by the Father. There is a joy when you hear of someone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ and they keep walking in the truth day after day, year after year. Just as I know many of you here will know the heartache of someone close to you that no longer walks in the truth, that no longer follows the Lord. I believe it's incumbent on each person here as a family to to pray for one another, to lift each other up to the Lord, that that your fellow brother or sister, that person that's down the, I was going to say down the pew, but down the set of chairs from you, that they would continue to walk in the truth. I think of Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer to the church of Colossae. You can turn there if you want. Colossians 1, 9-14. I'm just going to read through it. But what a great prayer. Starting in verse 9, Colossians chapter 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not sure how to pray for someone? Want to pray for me? Please pray this prayer. Pray for each other. That we'll walk in the truth. That we will not stray from it. Paul's example of prayer here is is wonderful and it's powerful. And it's what we should be praying as a church for each other. So from that greeting, that's all in the greeting. From the greeting, he then moves to the heart of the letter. What does it mean to walk in truth in the context of John's purpose of this letter? Look at verses 5 through 8. So 3 John 5 through 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. 
Now, before we dive in, let's think of the context to which this was written. The context is very much the the church was in a transitional time in history. For the previous 60 years, from the time of Christ's death on the cross until now, it was very much a pioneer work. People were going out and they were talking of this event that happened. They were talking of the life, the, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Some of them had been eyewitnesses to that. Others had experienced the truth and the power of Christ in their own lives after hearing it from somebody else, and they were now testifying to others. See, they had no Bible as we have today. I mean, yes, Paul could go into a Jewish synagogue and he could begin to reason with them. He could go to the Old Testament and he could lay out who the Messiah was and that Jesus was that Messiah. And he could build from there. But he couldn't do that with the Gentiles. He had to start with just who Jesus was. That he was God's son. That he was a man that came to earth and that he predicted his own death. And he predicted his own resurrection. And it all happened just like he said it would. And they could find forgiveness of sin. And and when these people responded a church would be established. Now, the New Testament has accounts and records for us to read where we see that Paul would stay months, sometimes years, to nurture these baby believers into mature Christians. Paul, though, wasn't the only one planting churches. Who was helping these churches grow in the truth? There was no Bible. They couldn't say, well, here, you know what? You should start with the book I read, wrote myself, John, and then from John, you know, pretty good Matthews. They didn't have that. I mean, there were some letters floating around, but they didn't have a Bible as we had. So they had people, men and women, that would travel from church to church, and they would strengthen people. They would encourage them in the faith. Where would they stay? There were inns in the New Testament. Now, granted, there were nothing like our comfort inns. The inns were by no means comfortable. They were often dirty, bug-infested, immoral places. So where did they stay? Well, not in the canon. The Didache, sometimes considered a very controversial book, does give some insight to the code of Christian conduct in the first century. It was written around 70 to 100 A.D., Now, it claims to be from the 12 apostles, and that's where the first controversy starts because many of the 12 apostles by 70 AD had already been executed. But the book does describe for us that a traveling teacher should be received as from the Lord for one day or possibly even two days. But anyone who wanted to stay longer than that was to be considered a false teacher, a freeloader. And you'll note, when Paul stayed longer than a day or two anywhere, what did he do? Put a, the old saying is you put a shingle out the front door, but he put up a sign and say, hey, tent making. And he made his own way while he was there and he stayed those months and years with people. Gaius is commended 
for extending hospitality to those traveling teachers. He didn't know them, but he opened the door. Perhaps as John wrote to him, John remembered the words of Christ from Matthew 25. Matthew 25, is the context is judgment. It's the end of the age. They're judging. It's the, the sheep from the goat, the separating of people. Here's what we read there, starting in verse 35 of Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Or maybe he was thinking what the writer of Hebrews pointed out when he stressed the importance of hospitality and love. From Hebrews chapter 13, the first two verses, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Gaius, his love was showed by how he walked in the truth. He walked in the truth, and the proof of that was offering the hospitality to those traveling teachers. And that was the testimony that those traveling brothers took back to Ephesus. And John encourages Gaius to continue doing what he did in the past. Gaius, I want you to do that in the future. Look at verse 6 again. Who testified to your love before the church, you do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. When you read that, there is an implication here, a responsibility, a financial responsibility to look after these teachers and missionaries on their journey. Not only to to receive them well, but to send them out well too. Just as an aside here, I want to encourage you even now to be thinking of ways that you can receive Todd and Mary Gale well. Yes, they're strangers to you, but they are also brothers and sisters in Christ. How you welcome a new pastor is going to set the tone for their ministry here. You want to welcome them well. You want to pray for their success among you. And you want to be thinking how you can partner with them. He isn't coming to do everything. And if you do that to him, that's very unfair. He's coming to encourage and equip you to do the work of the ministry. So think how you can partner with him. Back to the financial responsibility, picking up in verse 7 and 8. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now, it's here that John puts on a few qualifiers on his instructions. These are no ordinary strangers. Verse 7, 
they have gone out for the sake of the name. Well, what might that name be? How about Acts 4.12? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. They went out for the sake of Christ. Note the latter half of that verse 7. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That is, a, that is a statement about their conduct. They had no expectation of non-believers supporting them. Now, this wasn't a rule laid out that you could never take a, never take a donation from an unbelieving person. But in saying that, I want to put some cautionary note there. You want to ensure that when you take something from someone who's not a believer, well, take something from anyone, that there are no strings attached. Christian ministry should be supported by Christians. We cannot, nor should we expect the unbelieving to support reaching people for Christ and educating our people. There is a danger in becoming attached to money from non-Christian sources. Remember a few years ago where the government wanted people to attest that money's received out of the youth jobs program, the summer jobs program, was not to go to anyone who believed in abortion? That was a string attached to it. We need to be cautious when it comes to taking money from sources that aren't other believers. And there are implications. Uh, We don't have tons of time to think through all those. I'd be happy to discuss some of them later with people. But I would encourage you to think through that whole aspect in in the life of the church and in your own personal life. Back to verse 8. John is very straightforward. Listen as I read from this time from the New Living for verse 8. So we ourselves should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. So when you support somebody financially, we become partners with them. We become partners as they tell the truth to others. And there's an implication in that partnership. We better ensure that they are teaching the truth. We do not want to become partners with somebody that's taking the message of a false gospel to the world. When giving, whether as a church or as an individual, it's your responsibility to ensure that what is going out is the truth, that it is not a false gospel that's being spread. So when there's an appeal, don't be moved by emotion. People love emotional appeals. Do your research first. And continue to do your research on an organization. Organizations like people can begin to drift over time. So you need to continually go back. Because the name 40 years ago stood high and tall for Christ, doesn't mean it still stands high and tall for the truth anymore. You have to continually go back and look. Things can change. You want to make sure that they are still teaching the word. Now, a few things you can look for when you go to support a ministry. There's a website. It's called ministrywatch.org. The gentleman does a great job at ministrywatch.org. Now, it's American-based, so some of it's more international ministry. 
But they do a great job of accountability and, and where they see some ministries going. Also look for, and I always do this too few or too many, CCCC logo, which is the Canadian Center for Christian Charities. So if they have that logo on their site, then you know that at least there's some financial accountability. But I will say this, I will not support everybody that has a CCCC logo. So you need to go one step farther. You need to actually go on their webpage. You need to look at their statement of faith. You need to look at some of the other documents there. You need to look at some of the reports from the missionaries, what they're involved with, what they're doing, what their purpose is. You need to do your research before you send money. Also look to see how much of the money that you send them actually goes to the work. And it isn't going to some person up top who's raking in a nice salary for themselves. Back to Gaius. Because not everyone is a Gaius. There are others out there. And I hate to use the term lurking. But we must realize that we are in a spiritual war. That we are in the center of spiritual warfare. And there are others in the church that would seek to destroy the ministry of the church. Look at verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, a name just gives me the creeps, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and he also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Let's look at the charges against Diotrephes. There's actually six of them. John's correspondence went unanswered and obviously ignored. So there is this lost epistle. It's lost. Some people make a big deal of it. We just don't have it. Second, Diotrephes was arrogant. He was me first. Third, he bucked authority. He refused to acknowledge or even welcome John the Apostle. Fourth, talking wicked nonsense. Malicious gossip. He was disconnected from the truth and love. Fifth, he refuses to give hospitality or partner with anyone. And sixth, if you disagree with him, he puts you out. He excommunicates you from the church. Diotrephes isolated the church and the people. I'll admit, I am leery of lone wolves in the ministry. I get it that we don't want to endorse or spread the false, a false gospel. But I'm also leery of those who claim that they have the corner on all truth. Operating in isolation is often a sign of a power grab. And it sets up a situation where... Abuse can readily occur. Let me read that to you again, because I think it's that important. Operating in isolation is often a sign of a power grab and sets up a situation where abuse can readily occur. Before moving on, let's look at one of those words out of those six statements, and it's the word gossip. Gossip can be deadly in the body of Christ. 
Gossip shows a lack of concern for the other person or even the desire to hurt that other person and to exalt yourself. Gossip talks to whomever it pleases. Gossip often is concerned about the past and is personal issues. Gossip often sidesteps talking to the person because you'd rather talk about them. Gossip neglects the real problem or issue. Gossip promotes fear of openness and spawns more gossip. Gossip feels entitled to know everything, and when it doesn't, it makes it up. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19, we read this, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. If there's gossip in a church, it's a serious matter and it needs to be rooted out. It needs to be weeded from the church. We should always ask, do I need to share this? Is it true? Does it affect me? Does it build someone up or does it tear them down? And equally, on the listening side, we need to say, do I need to hear this? And I know, everyone here will go, whoops, I think I've blown it now and then on this issue. That's not fine, but it is in the sense that we don't want this to be a pattern. We may have an oops here and there, but we don't want a pattern in our lives of being a gossiper because it will destroy the church. And unfortunately, people like Diotrephes still exist in our churches today. And if a church doesn't deal with it, it will harm the church. Church, church discipline needs to be linked to love and truth. And not, well, if we discipline them, who's going to leave the church? And that's how some churches operate with decisions. Well, if we do this or do that, who's going to leave? That's the wrong way to operate. That type of thinking will kill the church. You're sacrificing your future. You're sacrificing walking in the truth by protecting the one who is walking in sin. John simply states, do not follow the diatrophies of your church. And he encourages Gaius to follow what is good. And then he holds up a name to him. Look at 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not see, has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. See, without even naming diatrophy, John makes a statement that should put a scare into many a person that sit in a church on a Sunday morning. The encouragement is not to imitate what is evil, but to imitate, imitate what is good. And whoever does good is from God. But whoever does evil, well, they haven't even seen God. They don't know Him. They stand outside His redemptive family. They are not believers. So when we think of and ask ourselves the question, wow, how could a Christian ever do that? That just might be the wrong summation of the situation. Now, I by no means want to create judgmental spirit in anybody. But I want to create a discerning spirit. 
We want to give, we cannot give. People who live in sin cannot give sinful behavior, sinful disobedience, a pass. The very person you would make such a statement about, well, how could a Christian do that, is likely not redeemed at all. And that's how they could do that. In contrast, Diotrephesi, two Diotrephes, John holds up Demetrius as an encouragement, as someone worthy to be followed. Demetrius is held in high regard by all, by the truth itself. Now, we're not able to pinpoint and identify Demetrius. We know that he's worthy to follow. We, we, we know he's worthy to imitate. And we know that because it tells us that he measures up to the word. I did my two-day training at the end of the week. And I was amazed. I, I, I listened to and met some pastors and leaders. And I've, I've, I've heard their names before. But, as I, but I've not met them. And as I listened to them, I was amazed. I was amazed at who they looked up to. I was amazed at the mentors they had. And oftentimes they found encouragement in each other over the years. This morning I want to encourage you to ensure that Todd and Mary Gale are given the opportunity in their schedule to meet with other pastors. Not as part of their holidays. Ministry is hard. It's a different world. They need the opportunity to be able to drink from the well of a Demetrius. It's easy to become isolated and myopic in your own situation. Provide them with the means and the time to link up with others. Perhaps you let them go to something like, well, the Fellowship Baptist has a pastor's conference and you can attend there even if you're not in one of their churches. Heritage Seminary has some great stuff. But they'll need something like that to help their success be your success as a church. Just as, just as they're not able to meet all your needs, you're not going to be able to meet all their needs. And though I can't prove this from Scripture, I believe that Demetrius was aware of the contents of that letter. And he knew he was sent to be an encourager and an example. But John wasn't, wasn't satisfied with just sending Demetrius. He wanted to go too. There's something about looking someone in the eye face to face, and he wanted to go talk with Gaius. Look at, look at the remaining verses in our post-it note this morning. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends greet you, and greet the friends, each by name. As in our last letter, John would rather go and meet face to face and have a conversation, have that communication together. And then he ends the letter with the Greek equivalent of shalom, wishing peace and sending greetings. So the shortest letter in the Bible is rich. John encourages believers to be rich in hospitality towards others, especially those who work in the ministry. To both receive them well and and to send them off well. He speaks of partnerships in that financial responsibility. That we should support ministries. Whether that partnership is local with your local pastor. Or whether it's something like the guest workers outreach that happens here on Saturday night. That the church hosts. 
or, or whether that partnership was with Nate and Sarah Montgomery as they represent you in Africa. It needs to be rich. And you need to understand that they are your representatives in Africa. They are your hands and feet in missions. John also warns us to beware of a Diotrephes-like attitude. To quickly deal with those that are full of self. Those who would seek to isolate and make FBC their own little kingdom. It's God's work in Lambton Shores. It doesn't belong to any one person. And let's not forget the mention of the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's a misrepresentation of truth. And without truth, there is no love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. and We thank you for your truth. Father, I just pray for Forest Baptist this morning, Father. I pray that each person here this morning, I pray that they will have wisdom, they will grow in the Lord. Father, we pray that we may each walk in the truth. And as we walk in the truth, we will be a lighthouse to this community of Lambton Shores. So we encourage each one here to read the word, to pray to you, and to look at ways of being hospitable to each other and look at ways to welcome Todd and Mary Gale in. Look at ways to both welcome their missionaries and to send them along in a worthy manner of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.